0: Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 1, and so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1. And this morning, our text is uh, verses 12 through 26. So we'll complete, Lord willing, uh, the first chapter. Uh, I'm sure Nathan will call out what page that's on in the Gray Bible. Kind of what, what you're, you're good, good at, at these days. days. I mean, it's yeah. not just, just only what you're good at, but yeah. one of your many talents. Uh, All right. If you don't have a Bible on page 530 in the gray Bible underneath uh, with the seats in front of you, you'll find Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And, and if you're new to church, uh, this is the portion of our weekly gathering where uh, I read a text of Scripture and try to uh, explain it a little bit and then uh, give some suggested application. Uh, I think but all of us understand that it is the Holy Spirit that takes His Word and applies it to your heart in a way that I could never try to manufacture. often have people come up to me and say, uh, how did you know I needed to hear that? And the, and the truth, truth is, is, I didn't know. know right? I just I I preached preach the text, text in front of me and, of me and uh, entrust the, the results to the Holy Spirit. Spirit and he's, he's going, going, uh, going to apply it to your heart in a way that, way that uh, I never could. And uh, and so that's what our hope is, is that uh, God would speak to you this morning, that we would all have ears to hear, uh, and that we would have um, eyes to see, and that His Spirit may uh, speak to you in such a way that you are encouraged and renewed and refreshed, taught, rebuked, corrected, uh, encouraged, strengthened, and whatever it is that God wants to do in your life today, uh, it's our prayer that it happens um, here uh, in this way. Um, I'm not stalling, I'm looking for something. Um, I I heard a quote that uh, I think will set our time together here in a helpful way. If you wanted to watch a movie, uh, you would go to a movie theater or you would sit on your couch in your theater room if you have one of those. Uh, You would have everything involved to set up the right environment. You wouldn't go to a swimming pool if you wanted to watch a movie. Uh, if you wanted to exercise, you wouldn't go to a gym or the buffet, you would go to a gym, you wouldn't go to the buffet. Uh, in the same way, if you desire to behold the beauty of Jesus, to really know Him and to really experience Him, to hear from him and to learn from him and to submit to Him, you put yourself in a place that facilitates beholding Jesus. And one of the most strategic places that you could go to time and time again is the local church. The place where the Bible is opened and taught accurately and regularly, where you are exposed to the scriptures, the word of God, the very words that the Holy Spirit of God wrote himself. And you would hear the word of God in the context of the people of God who know you and love you. Because the Spirit Loves to point us to Jesus, to the beauty of Jesus, and to the plans of Jesus. The Spirit loves to exalt Jesus. The Holy Spirit's role is to counsel us, and comfort us, and remind us, and teach us truth that he himself authored. And he does this activity regularly in the context of the rhythmic gathering of the body and bride of Jesus. Isn't that helpful for, for us to think about, about this environment, environment here is more than just um, my thoughts and opinions about a passage of scripture, but it, but it is where the Holy Spirit, Spirit himself, God just guides us, leads us and teaches us. And, and so, so it's with that in mind, mind uh, that let's uh, say a prayer before we read the text today. Father, we thank you for this environment. We thank you that Uh, through worship and through prayer and through music and through fellowship, that our hearts are prepared to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us by your word, that you would instruct us by your Holy Spirit, and that you would use the message uh, that you've prepared in my heart uh, to communicate to uh, those in this Uh, in this building. We pray that you would use it for your glory and for your majesty, that you would inform our minds, but instruct our spirits as well, and may it be done in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 1, we'll start in verse 12 and read all the way down through verse 26. Let's read together. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Anybody know who's missing there? Judas Iscariot. We learn what happens to him in just a moment. All these with one accord... "...were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons, was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Judas." Oh, Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Gross. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." We have in this passage uh, a number of insights. We have uh, insight into the, the infancy of the church, what they did in those moments immediately following the ascension of Jesus, when Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and the Shekinah glory cloud came and received Jesus and transported him continuing upward into the heavens where the two um, angels who stood beside them looking into heaven um, asked them, why do you stand and gaze upward? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, indicating what we should expect when Jesus returns how he will return, and in such a manner that he will come back. We have right here recorded for us what they did immediately afterward. We know that there is about a 10-day period between the ascension of Jesus, which took place 40 days after his resurrection, uh, and then 10 days before the Holy Spirit came at what we call Pentecost, uh, which we will get to, uh, Lord willing, next week. We We have all the activity, at least least all that we need to know about what they did during those 10 days. We have a roll call. We know who was there. We know the activities that they did. Last week we talked about the difficulty of waiting and how hard it is for many of us to wait wait and 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 to wait patiently or to wait quietly. Um, But we have uh, an indication of what they did while they were waiting. We read in verse 12 that they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away.
1: Sabbath day's journey was
0: a very short distance. Uh, we've covered this in uh, in sermons before. That uh, the Pharisees had set legal limits uh, on how far you could walk on a Sabbath to be considered work, and it just wasn't very far—a matter of blocks. Uh, but if you've been uh, to the Mount of Olives uh, or in the Jerusalem area, you'll know that it is just simply uh, up a slope and then down into a ravine and then into Jerusalem, into into the gates of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So So it was a a very very short walk. walk. Uh, Verse 12 12 tells us that that it was likely just a few few hundred hundred yards that they walked back from, from the Mount, Mount of Olives um, into the, the upper room. They had been staying in the upper room. The upper room was a, a large place where they enjoyed the Last Supper uh, with Jesus. In John chapter 12 and 13 uh, through 16, we have um, information about what took place in that upper room. It was likely a donated room. It was a place where uh, the uh, you remember Jesus before he went into Jerusalem on a donkey. He told his disciples, go to a place and ask them where uh, Uh, The the Lord may enjoy uh, the Last Supper with his disciples. And they found this place miraculously through uh, the sovereign work of God in preparing a heart of a person to prepare a place for them to go into. And, uh, And so that took place. And then we have a roll call in verses 13 through 14 of all the people that were there. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, the eleven apostles. It's important for you to understand that the apostles and disciples are two separate groups. There were a large number of disciples, and from the disciples, Jesus um, prayed all night, and from the larger group of disciples, he chose 12 apostles. The 11 apostles are here uh, together in the upper room. Verse 14, they were all there with one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. A couple of things to say about verses 13 through 14. Uh, we have the list of apostles minus Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Um, we learned that um, um, they were with one accord. Um, it's, uh, it helps us to understand that they were unified. They were together. They, uh, there wasn't a fighting among them. Uh, They weren't splintered. They weren't separate from each other, but they were um, in unity, which is a beautiful summary of where they were emotionally, spiritually, and physically after really the roller coaster that they had been through over the previous six months or so. Just imagine um, you, uh, if you were given some sort of a um, a glimpse six months into the future, and that you knew that your last days on Earth would be about six months from now, just the emotional overflow that would take place in your life and with the lives of your closest friends. Jesus had predicted his death. Jesus Jesus had moved toward Jerusalem. Jesus had had assassination attempts on his life. And so this entire period was like a cloud that hung over them knowing that Jesus was going to die. It was a, a low point, a somber point, a solemn time in their disciples' lives as they were trying to soak up every last moment that they would have with Jesus before he was was brutally crucified, crucified, and uh, and then the the hopelessness hopelessness that they felt as they saw his body removed, Joseph of Arimathea, and... the uh, The Pharisee Nicodemus, uh, they packed his body with spices. They put it in the tomb, and then the joy that they experienced on that first day when Jesus was resurrected and began appearing to them, and then as we talked about last week, appeared over a period of forty days to various different people, and uh, and gave instructions, and then rose. Imagine the emotional roller coaster that they had experienced: the sadness, the seriousness, the danger, and then now the elation.
1: Uh, of Jesus ascending
0: and then being together, so don't, so don't lose sight of the fact of that beautiful summary that the apostles were all together and they were united. They were in one accord. We also see their um, their activity. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. They weren't distracted. They were devoted. They were dedicated. They were committed and they were active. They weren't passively passing the time and waiting. Have you ever waited for something and you just did nothing? Sometimes that feels good, right? To, to just to do nothing for a while, to do something kind of mindless? The apostles were waiting, but they weren't doing nothing. They were actively waiting. How do you actively wait? They were redeeming the time by devoting themselves to prayer, They They were seeking seeking the Lord. Lord. They were praying about uh, their relationships, they were praying about their togetherness I imagine, they were praying about their mission, they were praying in anticipation, waiting for the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's no doubt that they were reading scripture during this time as well. Um, they found two passages that applied to their situation with uh, with um, Judas. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Verse 20, that's a quote from the book of Psalms. And they found Found another verse, let another take his office. So they were scouring the scriptures, they were praying together, they were meeting together, they were there together, not passively waiting, but actively redeeming the time. How do you do with time management and redeeming the time?
1: I listened to an interview this week on Family Life Today, a radio program, and I sat
0: in my car for uh, an extra half hour and um, got to where I needed to be and, and just sat there listening. You ever do that? Uh, sit out, sometimes you might sit outside a grocery store. I am a, the king of doing things like that where I can just run a quick errand and turn it into a really long thing. Uh, sometimes I'll go into a store and I'll, I'll do laps around the store before I remember what I'm looking for, and I'm um, very good at taking a a, a, a small, simple, simple, straightforward task and really blowing it up into some elaborate uh, thing. And so so this is one example of that that is where I was was on my way somewhere. somewhere. I got there, there, but I wanted wanted to listen to this radio broadcast. broadcast, And it was about an an author who wrote a book called Redeeming Your Time, Seven Seven Biblical Principles for Being Purposeful, Present, and Wildly productive. Productive. Uh, I love the interview, and I bought the book, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. But it reminded me of a class I took at seminary from uh, Donald Whitney, and Donald Whitney describes redeeming the time. Redeeming the time at every stoplight, redeeming the time at every, uh, everywhere you drive and everywhere you go, memorizing scripture or reciting scripture or or praying for other people. Um, Redeeming the time is is an active way in which we can um, uh, participate in the work of God and the kingdom of God as you go through this world. Um, Matt Freed will often message me. And I know that he's on his way home. He'll send me a great podcast or, or a great episode that he watched. And he's redeeming his drive from here to CB East every day, just filling his mind with scripture, filling his mind with godly things. And, and he sending me those kinds of things all the time. Redeeming your time. The disciples were redeeming the time. They were active, not passive. They were doing something productive for the kingdom in prayer. We also see that they were with the women. Uh, Coincidentally, it says they were with Mary. And uh, and just incidentally, this is the very last time that Mary is mentioned in the Bible. She's not included anywhere else in the New Testament. There are no doctrines built on Mary. Uh, There are no prayers offered to Mary. There is no record of her death or her burial place or her life. Afterward, she just fades into the background of the New Testament, having served her purpose. Think about the um, introduction that we have to Jesus in the Gospels, right? Mary was a massive part of it. Uh, A young woman told that she would be the mother of Jesus, the Messiah, Uh, and yet for her to slip away into this last moment in the New Testament is somehow fitting Especially in light of how others elevate Mary to a, an ungodly and unhealthy position. Mary is not the co ruler. She has no shared leadership in the kingdom of God. She is not in heaven ruling over the church. She She does not have have the keys to Jesus' heart. We don't don't have to offer prayers to her Uh, as uh, I grew up Catholic. And I can remember um, sweating in the backseat of a car, trying to remember the right words, holding a rosary bead uh, one at a time as I walked through this prayer, um, um, praying to Mary. I remember going to a funeral of a loved one at a Catholic church and they had a a pre-funeral Service. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it was just a prayer service for this person's soul. And, uh, and I counted in my mind throughout this hour long service, how many prayers were offered to Mary versus how many prayers were offered to Jesus. And if I remember right, it was three to one entrusting a soul to Mary, begging Mary to save this person's soul
1: There has been an
0: ungodly, unbiblical um, emphasis on Mary that is not included in the New Testament. And so I just make that point here in passing. Not that that's news to uh, people who would happen to be in this congregation, but it is an incidental uh, point to make in verse 14 that this is the last time Mary is mentioned uh, in the Bible. Uh, We don't hear anything about about a father. father. The Bible is largely absent about about what happened to Joseph and uh, and what happened uh, to his sisters sisters as well. In verse 15, 15, we read that in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The The company of persons was in all about 120. Now, I have two minor points that I want to bring up here. and, um, And so about Peter here, think about what Peter had gone through over the previous 40 days. And notice how he stands up as a leader among the brothers. How was Peter able to be a leader? Hadn't he disqualified himself? Surely denying Jesus to his face would constitute a, um, a disqualification if I or another elder were to stand up here and say that I don't know who Jesus is, surely you would look for another pastor, right? Uh, surely that would be um, pause for concern. Peter had denied Jesus three times and then had during the um, the resurrection, uh, one of the women said, uh, Jesus told, go tell uh, the disciples and Peter right, that the Lord is risen. Uh, Peter was uh, in a different place during these 40 days. But at the end of, um, of John 20, we see Peter being restored by Jesus himself. She, Peter had left his uh, fishing career. He had laid it all down to follow Jesus and to serve him full-time in ministry. After his failure, it was no small detail that Peter went back and started fishing. But in God's providence, Peter had fished all night and caught nothing. Have you ever fished? for an hour and caught nothing? Anybody fish in the room? It's a miserable experience. Um, One summer, Grayson caught fish when he was a young kid, and uh, he caught one, and then uh, he wanted to catch another, and then we caught another, and then he set up this other goal that he wanted to catch this kind of fish, and we wanted to clean it and eat it right there on the shore, and so we did that. And then before the summer was over, he said, I want to catch a catfish. And And so so I don't know anything about catfishing. catfishing, uh, Even though I went to school in Arkansas, Arkansas, um, I knew knew a lot about uh, friends who knew how to catfish. So I called Scotty Johnson and I said, how am I supposed to catch a catfish? catfish. We We have have one or two nights before we can do this. And he he told me to get get some some chicken gizzards and some chicken livers, wrap them in cheesecloth, and just cast it out. It's that simple. With me, it's never that simple. We, we bought gear, we had headlights, we had, had a chair, ball, we were at a knock a we had a permit, we had everything we needed, and, and we, 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 I didn't do it very well, well, but I wrapped these gizzards up, up and I threw them out, and, and no joke, for two hours, hours it sat there and nothing happened at all. By, by one or two, two o'clock in the morning, we were determined that we were, we were going to catch this catfish, fish. and, and I don't know why we didn't decide to do this earlier, but we wrapped the liver up and we threw it out there, and just within a few minutes, we had a bite and within 15 minutes, he caught a catfish. And within 30 minutes, I was at home in bed. <laughs> it was a long night, right? But just two or three hours. I can't imagine being a professional fisherman, throwing nets out over and, and then um, not catching anything. Peter had fished all night and caught nothing. As the sun was rising, they looked out and there was a charcoal fire and an individual making that fire, and he called out, have you any fish? And they said, nothing. He said, throw your net on the right side. And they threw the net on the right side, and what happened? 153 fish were caught in the net, and uh, Peter says he threw on his outer coat, and he dove in the water and swam to shore to meet Jesus. And it was there that Jesus restored Peter after his failure.
1: And, and I'm, I'm so, so glad, glad he did, because it gave Peter,
0: Peter a lifetime of ministry fruitfulness. Peter wrote, uh, obviously, 1 Peter, 2 uh, Peter. Uh, we also have evidence that he traveled, traveled the, he led Cornelius to faith in Christ. He, um, he was such an integral part of the New Testament.
1: And so the application for you here is your failure isn't
0: final. Your failure isn't final. God can redeem your failures and your struggles and your missteps. You can experience renewal and restoration back into fruitful, life-giving ministry. Do you think you blew it? Do you think you messed up and that it's unredeemable? Peter blew it Jesus restored him mercifully, and he experienced a lifetime of fruitfulness. Your failure isn't final in the Gospels. Another detail we read here in verse 15, that the company of people was about 120. Don't let this detail be lost on you. Somebody Somebody was counting. counting. Somebody Somebody was back back there there keeping notes and keeping track. track. Listen, the gospel authors go out of their way to report numbers. You can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the rest of the New Testament without noticing somebody is keeping track. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all record specific numbers of fish caught, um, boats on the water, um, crowds, loaves, disciples, towns they went to, the divisions that they went into, months at times. All of those details matter. It does a couple of things. It grounds the Gospels in historical reality grounds the Gospels in historical realities. I had lunch with um, a couple this week, and one of them asked, I don't know why there are so many genealogies in the Old Testament. Why are all these lists of people's names over and over again that I know none of you ever skipped those? Um, And I said, well, you know, off the top of my head, I think it has to do with the fact that that those genealogies, they ground the scriptures, they ground the redemptive work of God in a historical context. You can talk about somebody's father or their mother or their, uh, when they lived and where they lived. It, It grounds the Bible in reality and history and separates it from myths and legends. Paul records um, that Jesus appeared to 500 people at once after his resurrection, and he said many of whom are still alive, meaning there's the, you can go down and talk to him. He saw Jesus alive, and you could go and um, interview eyewitnesses. There are details that we find in Acts about numbers and places. Uh, I referenced this last week. One um, archaeologist who was skeptical about God and the Bible scriptures went through all the places where Acts mentioned. And in all of his archaeological discoveries wound up being converted to Christ because of the accuracy of the book of Acts and Luke's um, historical um, references that he mentions in the book of Acts. Sometimes Sometimes we react react negatively negatively to numbers. numbers. Uh, I know this happens to me sometimes Sometimes at pastors' conferences or denominational gatherings. It has become in the past an unhealthy metric that led some people to boasting or to pride or to some sort of ministry validation. Sometimes we, even in our flesh, can view a congregation that has 500 people or 1,000 people as more important or more blessed than a congregation of 100 people or just a dozen people. Just, Just because, because we can view counting, counting people in an unhealthy way or an skewed way that might distort our judgment doesn't mean that counting people um, is wrong. Let's, well, let's come to grips with, with a couple, couple of realities regarding numbers. numbers. Each number represents a person and people matter to God. That's, that's the, uh, the, the, the quickest thing that we should get to when we read a number like this, that if 120 people were there Every single one of them were individuals that God knew their name, that he knew the number of hairs on their head, that he knew the number of days that they had before them and behind them, the words that before they were ever a word on their mouth, the Lord knew those things. So every number represents a person and people matter to God. God doesn't lose sight of an individual just because they're numbered in a large group. Isn't that comforting? Another thing that we can come to grips with about numbers The kingdom of God is built up one person at a time. There is no wholesale group plan. God isn't just redeeming a country or a people group or a nation. He redeems one person at a time, each one being born again into the kingdom in a unique and special way that brings God glory. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. You You may may have have this habit too, but on any of our children's birthdays, birthdays. we have a birthday birthday breakfast and we get them them a big uh, fat donut from, from, uh, what's what's the name name of that place?
1: Yeah, yeah, from him, Yum. One, one of those big, big ones. ones. You know what I mean? Um, um, we, we get,
0: get one, one of those, and and, and as, as they're you know digging into that thing, thing and, and we're uh, uh, we're, we're talking, talking about how special about their birthday, birthday was, and so so we, we remember, remember all the details about, about that. that. Listen, Listen God, births God births each individual, individual into, his into His kingdom in a special and unique way. way. He redeems people and builds the kingdom up one person at a time, weaving together the circumstances that lead to an individual's salvation in such a way. as As to to bring bring God God maximum glory and us maximum maximum participation. participation. Isn't that beautiful? It's It's like a tapestry tapestry of of threads that that if you were to look look at the back back of it, it all looks jumbled and, and messed up. But if you flip that thing around, it creates a beautiful picture of the work of God where he's weaving together the circumstances that lead to a person's salvation in such a way
1: as to bring together someone who knows the gospel with someone who has been prepared
0: to hear the gospel. A third thing thing that we can come come to grips with about numbers, numbers, and then I'll move on, I promise. Counting is a means of measurement that demonstrates order. Our world, our world is often chaotic, chaotic but God, God is, is God a God of order and precision rather than God a God of chaos. And there is a precision, a math- mathematical precision. I remember one mom was teaching her, um, four, her three or four-year-old son about math, and she asked him, um, what does math say? Um, how, does this, how does this equation work? And he says, by the power of God. <laughs> He's saying this math problem is that's, that's the right answer, answer right all the time it's like I don't know the answer to this equation but I know the power of God put it together right it's a testament to the, the fact that God created God is a God of order and when you see something ordered it points to an orderer. everything in God's creation demonstrates a level of order and purpose at every level both the microscopic and the macro levels Let's move on to uh, verses 16 through 26. This will be the last section that we cover today. Uh, this is about the choosing of um, the, the next apostle. Uh, we, we get details into Judas and how Judas, um, how his last days were lived. Uh, there is a potential discrepancy in that uh, We read in Matthew and Luke different ideas about what happened, happened to Judas. Judas. One account says that uh, Judas threw the money, right? He was, was so ashamed, ashamed of what he did that he went back and he, he threw the money. And, and it says that they wouldn't take the money because it was blood money. money.
1: And, and so, so the Pharisees, Pharisees or, the or the high priest, they, they bought a property. And that uh, with that money,
0: Judas um, fell uh, and, and killed himself, and himself on that property. property. In another account, we see that um, Judas bought the field and that Here in verse 18, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. That's the the silver coins that he was paid for betraying Jesus. We see the details here. Uh, Although those details appear to us a discrepancy, uh, however it happened, with the reward of his wickedness, a field was purchased. Whether it was by the priests or the Pharisees or Judas himself, that's uh, not Part of our conversation uh, or purview here to understand, but we do know how he died. Uh, verse 19 says, It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, that is, Field of Blood. Just one note about Judas and his life uh, he betrayed Jesus for money. People betray for money all the time. You watch Friday Night Datelines or whatever. Money is almost always the motivator behind some horrible crime. Um, it, It prompts a warning in us, as Mark preached this summer from Proverbs, to be content with what God has given you. Money can be a root, or the love of money can be a root of all kinds of evil. And so always keep in check your heart and your posture toward finances. It became became for for Judas Judas a reason for his death. death. Uh, Verse 20, they decided to replace him, they scoured the scriptures, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, meaning may the place where he dwells, that field, may it be desolate, let there be no one to dwell and to live where Judas lived, and then another passage, and let another take his office. This shows us that they were reading, that during that 10 days they they were reading scripture and they were finding passages of scripture that applied to their situation. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, um, this gives us the criteria for who the next apostle would be. There were people that were in and out among the disciples beginning from John's baptism until the day he was ascended. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. I love the fact that there is... um, A lot of nameless people. We wouldn't have known these two names, but people who just followed Jesus from the very beginning, who were a part of his discipleship group, that we may never know their names. It says that uh, they put forward two, verse 23, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. I don't know which name to use, Joseph, Justice, Barsabbas. Any, uh, Any Barsabbases in the room? Any Justices? We had a friend named Justice. Uh, And then Matthias, who who just has has one name, so they obviously chose Matthias. Matthias. Verse 24, they prayed and said, You, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This, this has dominated, dominated a lot of my, my thinking, thinking this week. week. You if you've been, been around me this week, week you've heard me ask the question, question uh, hey, why, why did, what's, what's with the, the 12 apostles, apostles here? here? Why did Jesus choose 12? What's the significance of 12? We know that biblically 12 is a significant number. There were 12 tribes in Israel. The land was allotted to each of the 12. Uh, We know that Revelation describes that there will be a future for these 12 apostles as well as the 12 tribes. If you enter into the New Jerusalem, you're going to walk through one of 12 gates and each gate will have a name on it, the name of one of the apostles who who oversee uh, have a, a part in the the coming um, the coming, coming governing uh, administration of Jesus? The twelve apostles means that Matthias now has a future role in in the in the in the end times in in the in the future world. Um, some people look at this and they think. Well, it wasn't Paul, Paul. I mean, He's let's just say, it wasn't Paul supposed, was supposed to be the 12th Apostle. Um, the Apostle Paul didn't meet that criteria that they laid out.
1: He wasn't with them from the beginning.
0: Uh, he did not experience discipleship under Jesus. That was the, the second um, criteria, is he had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrection. The third criteria uh, was that they had to have a direct and immediate commissioning, to to the the office by by Christ Christ himself. Jesus Jesus himself appointed the apostles. So there is debate on whether it was to be Paul or whether whether it was to be Matthias. And for for a a large portion of my Christian life, I thought thought it should have been Paul. And and even now, I I just have to tell you, I still don't know. I'm I'm still undecided undecided as to um, if if Paul is the 12th apostle or if it's Matthias. Matthias. If you have... Some insight on that. You feel free to talk to me afterward. Uh, I also know that there is a missional significance to 12 because we understand that the apostles were tasked with the oversight of the mission. Jesus told them, go and make disciples uh, and um, uh, teach them, baptize them. Um, Luke really only focuses in acts on Peter and Paul as their missional paths go out. We don't know what missional directions the other 10 remaining apostles took. We know that James, the brother of John, is going to be martyred in a few chapters. Um, But there's church history that says Thomas went to India, and that there are others who went to other places. Uh, We don't know um, for a fact where the other uh, ten apostles spread to. Uh, We only have evidence that Peter ended up in Rome. I do like this fact, though, and I'll I'll make a point of application here, is that there are so many believers... If there are apostles, there are also disciples and believers even today who labor in relative obscurity. You may never know their name. We learn here about two guys that you'd never heard of before and you don't hear anything about in the future. I appreciate how Scripture acknowledges some but doesn't acknowledge everyone for the very fact that most of us will live our days in relative obscurity. Thanks. That's not not very encouraging. encouraging. No one's going to remember me when when I die. die. Yeah, Yeah. sadder than the DJ. I only mean that we won't have the kind of impact that will be discussed hundreds and hundreds of years from now. Very few of us have that potential, but but there is one who watches and who sees what is done in secret. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that when you pray, go into your room and close the door. When, he, when you fast, go into your room and, and don't make a, a big show of it. When you give financially, don't demonstrate it because he repeats over and over again in that Matthew 5-7 through section, when your heavenly father who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. It means God is one who watches who sees you and though you feel like you're doing some purposeless, meaningless ministry that no one is even paying attention to,
1: there is comfort in the fact that we labor, all of us together, in relative
0: obscurity. The mother who's taking care of the babies, you know, day in and day out, wondering what will come of this, that is her ministry right there. Uh, Those who serve the church, we have people who come in before and after who you'll never see, and and we couldn't do ministry here without them.
1: There's a blessing for those who serve in faithfulness without the need for
0: recognition. And I think that's important for us to note in a day when Christian celebrity culture just rots the soul of people who are selfishly ambitious and who want their name to be known. I was mowing my yard Friday, and this verse just kept coming up. I can't remember where it's from. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Rid yourself of selfish ambition, Philippians 2 describes, and that our Christian celebrity culture reeks of selfish ambition and the desire to make our name great instead of to make the name of King Jesus great. There should be a joy and a, a relative humility that it should accompany our service to Christ that doesn't do it for the purpose of making our name known, but to make his name famous. Let's close with this. We see a blueprint here that can inform us on how to make decisions. Peter and the remaining apostles during that 10-day period, they searched the scriptures. They prayed together. They were, they were devoted, devoted to prayer. To prayer. They, they defined, defined the parameters, parameters of the decision, right? Uh, there has, has to be somebody who's gone in and out from among us, from, from the time of John the Baptist all the way up, up until the Ascension. They, they, they defined their, their terms. terms. They presented, they presented the, the options, options, Matthias and, and, and Justice, Joseph, Joseph Barsabbas, Barsabbas. Uh, and then they, they rolled the Urim and Thummim. You remember the Urim and Thummim that the, the high priest would have worn on his shoulders? These two sort of equivalent to what we we would think of as dice uh, this was the way that they made decisions they they entrusted um, the sovereignty of God they entrusted the decision to the sovereignty of God and the uh, in the, the rolling of Urim and Thummim this gives us an idea of how to make decisions how do you make decisions how do you make important decisions do you flip a coin do you go, go with, with your gut? gut? Do you get, get counsel, counsel from, from other people? people? Many, Many of you are facing decisions. We make thousands make and thousands, thousands of decisions, decisions a day. Most of them are inconsequential, but others make uh, are, are facing important decisions. decisions. A, a job change, change. A, a relationship, relationship decision. decision, a financial decision, a travel decision, a, a, decision. Career, a decision. career decision, an educational decision, a, a spiritual decision. decision. There are people here who are considering Should I give my life to Jesus or not? This gives us a blueprint for a way in which we can discern God's will and make good, godly decisions. If you were considering the decision to give your life to Jesus, if you were to put this passage into practice, you would search the scriptures. You would be seeking truth. You would be listing the options, weighing your concerns. You would be certainly praying about it. You would be discussing the decision with people who know you and love you. You would be weighing out pros and cons. I remember a disciple, uh, a man who discipled me, showed me how to make a pros and cons chart on should I forgive a person who had wounded me and who I was harboring bitterness In the process of that, I labored over Scripture and wrote out all these different factors and in the end came to a decision to forgive in obedience. All of it it was included in this decision-making process. If you're trying to decide to follow Jesus or not, this is a good place for you to be. To, To be in a place where you're hearing Scripture, where you're around people who know you and love you and are praying for you. If you have other decisions to make, big decisions, see this as a blueprint for decision making. Where you should go to school, what your career should be, who you should be dating or not dating. All of those decisions must be made for the Christ follower. We make those with the information that God's given us, by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, as well as by scripture and godly counsel. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for a passage that is so um, ripe and overflowing with application and information. Help us not to be content with just um, information sermons only. Help us to put them into practice whereby we become a man or a woman of God who builds their life on a firm foundation of application, not just Bible knowledge. Some of the meanest people we know can quote scripture up and down. It's those who have taken it in and brought it to a point of application who demonstrate the one who builds his house on firm foundation. So let us put your word into practice in our own life today as the Holy Spirit has instructed us. In Jesus' name, amen.